0: Ted, word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together for uh, being a uh, wonderful Father and Lord. Father, for uh, reaching out to us and drawing us with uh, great love and mercy and kindness. Father, uh, we don't always know which way to go and what to do. And Father, we've... Uh, we have sinned in our life father father um, just pray father that you would um, make clear to us our, your great and wonderful purpose and plan that uh, brings us to to honor you to glorify you to lift you up as as the God that you are father uh, father I pray that you'd uh, be in our midst uh, the rest of this morning and uh, direct uh, the talk uh, Conversations, the teachings, the preaching, and uh, glorify yourself. We pray this, these things in Jesus' name.
1: for our course above. Just Father, you are great and awesome, Father. Lord, I thank you that we may come this morning, Father, and worship you and praise you. Lord, I pray that you would um, be with our hearts today, Father, as Dave comes up and gives your message, Lord. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today, Lord. That you would encourage us, Father. In your name. Amen.
2: Good morning. I have just a couple more announcements. Um, one is right here on the screen. Connect uh, is... Uh, just a uh, snack time, tea, uh, hangout time that we're going to have over at Rod and Janice Chisholm's house, Sunday, November 7th. That's one week from today, 2 to 4. Is it 2 to 4 or two 2.30 to 4? It's 2.30 to 4. Okay, it's right there. We have invitations in the back, and uh, actually I don't have anybody ready, but if, if you would be interested in coming to that, if, if you would raise your hand, if you feel like you're new, or maybe even if you've been here for a while, but I just haven't had a chance really to connect to the leaders of the church, This is basically an opportunity for you to get to know other folks at the church, find ways to get involved, meet some of the staff and elders and deacons that will be there that afternoon. We have invitations at the back that you can get on your own afterwards, or if you raise your hand now, we can pass some of those out. Actually, hey, Ben, will you turn the lights on? We, We don't have the lights on. you hit those for me? There we go. All right. And uh, anybody would like an invitation? Could you grab some of those invitations? And I'm going to enlist Ben to pass out the invitations, too. He was just standing there minding his own business. (laughs) All right. Ben, will you pass out some of those invitations? See him on the stool to your left, right there? All right. we got some right here on this aisle, some right there. He'll get to you. We've got a couple over here on this side. And even if Ben misses you, you have permission to go get one of those invitations after the service yourself. I think we've got a couple more over on this side. There's one back corner, two on that row, one on the almost front row. There's another one. Just popping up all over the place. One of the things we found uh, as we have been planting this church for four years is uh, that Colleen is an interesting place where new people come and go quite a lot. And uh, we love that. It makes it exciting, but it makes it hard sometimes to keep up with people. So this is just another effort we're, we're making to try to get to know you Um there's a lot of other opportunities in the bulletin. Uh, We've gotten to the point where we can't even verbally announce everything that's going on, but I would appreciate you just looking through the bulletin and checking out the different groups that are going on. Hopefully we have a group that uh, is a a good connection, a good fit for you, that you could get involved. We feel like we're at this point as a church where we're large enough to not always feel like you know each other just by coming to the service and feel like it's really important for you to grow in your faith to get to know other people, to share in life with others, not to just kind of show up and Uh, come in and come out and not really know people, but to do life together. We feel like that's a command of the New Testament, that we would share in life together. Another great opportunity to share in life together involves some physical violence in a few weeks. We're going to have a men and boys football game, November 22nd. Actually, I got flags, but there's still plenty of collisions that take place. Um, So we'll have an announcement next week about that, but November 22nd, it's a few weeks. It's basically the Sunday afternoon before Thanksgiving week. Uh, And we'll just meet over at Ellison School. There's a high school caddy corner across the street from us. And uh, we'll meet over there on one of their practice fields and have a good time around 1 to 4. Usually what we do is we kind of have a men's game, like high school and above, and then some of the other boys play in another field. And then usually the second game, we combine everybody and let the boys play with the men and, and try not to hurt them. So it's a lot of fun, though. Also today is, what is today? It's Reformation Day. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people will celebrate Halloween tonight, and I would encourage you that if you're passing out candy, we've got some tracks that can uh, tell kids about Jesus. The rule is, though, if you do this, if you pass out the Jesus tracks, you have to pass them out with candy, okay? That's the rule. So some of those are in the hallway. You can grab some of those if you're interested. I want to give you an opportunity to bring Jesus into what is otherwise a very pagan holiday. Um, but it's also Reformation Day. We remember Luther nailing his 95 theses to the... Uh, to the castle door at Wittenberg and uh, telling people that he believes that you can't be saved by paying money to the church, but you've got to be saved by faith in Christ and Christ alone. And uh, today is a good passage to help us remember that. Today we're continuing our series in Hebrews, and the series is called A Better Savior. In this series, overall, this theme that goes through the whole book, we've been seeing that there's all these wonderful things in the Old Testament that are true and right and good But they all point us to a fuller fulfillment, a greater fulfillment in this better Savior, Jesus. That he is the ultimate picture that everything is pointing to in the Old Testament. So the author is not rejecting the Old Testament. The author is saying that all of the Old Testament is pushing us towards Jesus. That he's the one that we're looking for. And so don't don't stop short with the Old Testament, but move on to the better things that we find in our Savior, Jesus. This week, the title is A Better Repentance. And I'm going to be frank with you, this is a very difficult sermon this week, okay? So, uh, I'm going to make sure there's time for question and answer afterwards. There may be some things today that may be confusing. We're going to try to make it as clear as possible. This is really one of the most debated passages in the Bible. Um, that, that sounds like an overstatement, but it, it really is. This is one of the most debated passages in the Bible. It's a difficult text. Um, our texts kind of before and after this are a little more clear, so I think that's going to help us make sense of the little piece in the middle that confuses people, that causes people a lot of uh, angst and anxiety. But we're in chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. We're on page 1003 in those Bibles. We're going to be in chapter 5, looking at verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. So if you'll read with me, we're going to look at a better repentance. Repentance. And just to clarify our terms, a lot of us are familiar with the term penance, right? Have you ever heard the term penance? Penance is a religious term that means making up for your bad deeds, right? Doing good deeds to make up for what you've done wrong. Repentance, the biblical word repentance is the, is the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change of mind. So it's this idea of faith, right? It's usually a more negative term for faith. We usually think of faith as faith in God and Repentance is taking our faith out of ourself, or taking our faith out of our sin. But it's basically this idea of a change of mind, a change of heart, a turning, a turning. And that's what repentance means. It always leads to a changed life, but at its basic root is this heart change, this faith change. So let's read 5.11 through 6.12. And remember last week, because we're starting off, I've, I've said this again and again, we're starting off referring to last week. Last week he was talking about All the incredible suffering and struggling that Jesus did for us as a new kind of priest. Not a priest in the tribe of Levi, but a priest in the line of Melchizedek, a new kind of priest, a forever priest. And he says this in 11 now. About this, about that priesthood, about this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Literally, you have lazy ears. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of Repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, the instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So he's saying there are these basics of the faith and we're going to move on beyond those. We're not leaving them be behind in the sense that they don't matter anymore, but we're going to build on them. He says we're not going to keep laying a foundation. We've got the foundation of repentance from our, our dead works, things that don't work out, and faith toward God. We want to build on that and allow it to look like something in our life. He says in verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt... For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So he said a lot of scary stuff right now, he's saying, but in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. Again, lazy. Same word we saw at the beginning of this section. So that you may not be sluggish or lazy but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is a difficult text today. And what I want to set up from the beginning is that we believe very strongly in the idea that we can be secure in Christ. And so today I'm going to try to do this thing where we afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Have you ever heard that term before? It's kind of a cliche in preaching that good preaching should do both. That if you're just comfortable and lazy, you should be pushed. You should be a little nervous. You should be afraid. You should be scared. You should be considering yourself, testing yourself, examining yourself. Uh, But if you're afflicted and you're afraid, you should find comfort in Jesus. And that's to believe what the author is trying to do this morning. I think that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us this morning in this text, to cling to Jesus, to see him alone as our hope. So let's pray and ask God to, to teach us today. Father, we thank you that you love us. We believe that you have good things for us. Father, I pray that your spirit would join with us this morning and reveal you to us so that we would see you, that we would not be distracted by um, interpretations we've heard in the past or experiences that we've had, but we would hear directly from your word, that it would teach us. We pray, Lord, also that it would transform us, that it would look like something, that it would change us. And we pray that all of this would happen for Jesus' sake. Well, I don't know how many of you have ever uh, been rappelling. Have you ever been rappelling before? Anybody out there? Okay, a few of you. Some of you Army guys do that kind of stuff. So don't laugh at me if I'm, you know, talk about how scared I was the first time I did it. Because I know some of you have, like, jumped out of airplanes, which is, I I could never do that. I'm not really scared of heights. I'm just scared of falling. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) So that just, that would be terrible. But uh, first time I went rappelling was about 20 years ago. I was 18 years old. I was going to a camp. It was in Colorado, so I had the good fortune, you could say, or maybe misfortune, of repelling off a genuine cliff, right? Um, Instead of a wall with soft grass that I was repelling off of, the first time I repelled, it was jagged rocks and more jagged rocks, hundreds of feet below. And so I was scared just hearing about it, right? I was afraid to entrust myself to this process. But I talked to the youth leaders. I talked to the guides. They assured me that they could be trusted, And so I began to have a change of heart, a change of mind. And I started to think, okay, I think I could trust these guys. I think I can entrust myself to them. Uh, They seem to be well-trained. They seem to know what they're doing. Uh, When we were getting the stuff strapped on, you know, they put this harness on you. And all the pieces of the harness are double-buckled just in case one part fails. They've got another backup plan. And they've got the carabiner with the rope. And then they've got another carabiner with another rope. And there's, there's all these safety features, right, to make sure that you are safe. To make sure that you are secure. And so you begin to say, I think I, I, think I can trust him. I, I began to repent of my previous fear. I began to change my mind, change my heart, and say, I, I think this is going to be okay. But then difficulty comes, and, and you might sometimes change your mind again, because there's a whole nother feeling you have when you're actually stepping off the cliff. If you've, if you've done this before, it's one thing to be standing on solid ground and say, Yeah, I get it. This is safe. I can trust you. You're well-trained. There's lots of buckles here. I'm, I'm going to be okay. But there's a completely different feeling when you're, you're going over the edge, right? And that's similar to what these guys felt themselves living through in the situation. It's one thing to say, Man, yeah, Jesus is all right. I'm all over this Jesus thing, but when difficulties come... In our life, that can be a completely different experience. And we can start to think, well, well, maybe, I, well maybe I need to take care of myself because I don't, I don't know about this Jesus guy anymore. In the case of repelling, my first instinct as I'm going over the cliff is I've, I've just got to hold on to these rocks. Forget the rope, right? I mean, I just want to like cling like a spider or something. I, don't know what it, you know, I just don't want to like grab on. I don't, I don't want to entrust myself to this weird guy that's trying to let me down on some ropes. The worst part is they, they tell you to sit into it, right? So you, you can't actually do it if you're hugging the rock. <laughs> you, you have to lean back. It, it doesn't even work unless you're leaning back onto the rope. I just want to tell them they were crazy, right? I mean, I just that didn't make sense to me because every instinct in me wanted to revert back to the ways I'd survived cliffs before, you know? And that was always clinging for dear life. It never entrusted me, you know, sitting on some little rope. That's the same sort of situation I think we find ourselves in with our faith. It's one thing to say, I trust Jesus. But when difficult times come, our instinct is to return to our old habits. Our instinct is to say, forget Jesus. I'm just holding on for dear life to whatever I trusted before, right? Whatever worked for me before, I'm going to trust in myself. I'm going to trust in my fingers, Right, I'm not going to trust in a rope. And that happens to us. It happened to them in the first century. And that's been a theme that we've seen again and again through this book. Don't fall back. Trust Jesus. You can keep trusting him even when things are difficult. Things are not going to be perfect. Things are going to feel scary. Things are going to go wrong because we're not in heaven yet. That's still future. The health and the wealth is not now. The health and the wealth is what we call heaven That's the future that we look forward to. In this time that we live now, it's it's difficulty, and it's scary, and we're told to entrust ourselves to sit in the promises of God, because He's the only one that we can really trust when things get difficult. Now, as we go into this uh, passage, I want to remind you of a few verses. We've we've got, uh, in the earlier service, I had like a whole nother page of verses we didn't even get to, but there's just a lot of... A lot of theology we want to cover today because this is a difficult text. We want to be good students of the Word and look at what does the Bible say in other parts of the Bible so that we can understand a difficult text. Because a basic, a basic of Bible study is when you come to a difficult text, you don't let that rule your life, but you interpret it in light of the simple texts. Does that make sense? So there's all these, these clear texts throughout Scripture. And then when you come to a difficult text what you're going to do is you're going to look back to this bedrock you've already built, this theology you've put together of understanding the the more clear texts to help you interpret than the difficult texts. And that's what we're going to try to do today. So I want to lay a foundation here with some texts that tell us that we can trust Jesus as our rope. We can sit in to him. We don't have to cling to ourselves. We don't have to go back to our old habits of survival, but we can trust in Jesus. There's... Uh, some notes that actually a chaplain, a family that attends our church, John and Jessica Craven, he shared with me his notes from Hebrews, and he had some good verses here that I want to pass on to you as well, that help us trust in Jesus' work. First of all, if we see Philippians 1.6, and I encourage you not to flip back and forth to all these verses, but just to write them down if you want to look these up later, but I'll, I'll read these to you, I'll tell you where you can find them. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So if you may be afraid that you've messed up too much and that you're now beyond God's reach, you need to be assured that you can trust in God to finish what He started in your life. Okay? A lot of times we start well and we start to stumble and we think, maybe I'm beyond hope. But we can take courage looking at the example of other people in the Bible, right? People like Abraham, people like the Apostle Peter, that just continued to stumble and do stupid things. And we can be reminded by this verse, Philippians 1-6, that God will complete what he started in you. He'll finish his work in your life. Another section that's really good is Romans 8. Just, Just camp out in Romans 8 for a while. Just kind of bathe in it for a little while. It's just a great chapter to live in. And there's a particular section here that talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, there will be all kinds of things that will make us feel unloved, that will make us feel scared, that will make us feel afraid, all kinds of difficulties that we'll go through in life, but nothing can truly take us away from Jesus' love. And in Romans eight thirty seven it says, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And these things are the difficulties that we go through, right? We don't live in the health and wealth now. Again, health and wealth is our future. That's heaven. Health and wealth is not... For now, for now there's difficulties and trials and wilderness that we go through. To use the Old Testament examples that he shared in Hebrews. Wilderness and desert that we're going through. And he says, And all these things were more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that is a promise. That is a bedrock for you to live on. For some, that's something for you to, to sit in. Something that you can trust. That no difficulty in life can separate you from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. The last thing that we see, I want us to look at John 10. Again, you can just write these down and look them up some other time. In John 10, Jesus says, Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Again, we are absolutely secure. The carabiner cannot break that holds us, right? In John 10:27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. These verses speak to our absolute security that we have in Christ. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Now there's another side, the more fearful side. Now I've got the bad news, okay? The the other side, the warning that this guy is talking about in Hebrews, and that he's already shared as we looked at the Old Testament people of God, the warning is that you can be walking with the people of God and not really be one of God's people. Does that make sense? So if you belong to Him, if you trust Him, nothing can snatch you out of His hand. But you can really be trusting just the trappings of God. You can be trusting the building. You can be trusting, well, I walked the aisle. Well, I gave a lot of money. Well, I I taught Sunday school. There's a passage in Matthew that speaks to this in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So the biblical balance is if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's a relationship of trust. It's not anything that you do. But the other side of that is that there are people that, that aren't in Christ. They're just in the church. And we need to be very careful because this is especially dangerous in the Bible Belt. We've, we've talked about before that the church can be like a hobby, right? Or it can just be another country club or uh, just another association that we join. The promises of the Bible are not if you have the trappings of Christ, you're safe. But only if you have Christ. You're safe. Are you trusting in Him? Or are you just kind of walking along with the people of God and then when things get difficult, you're going to bolt? And that's the warning that this passage is about today. The first thing that he describes to us when he helps us to understand what does true repentance look like? What is a true change of heart, true change of mind, what does that really look like? The first thing he says is that true repentance struggles. And we're picking up a little bit. As I said, we're kind of overlapping each section we look at because the way... This book works. Is that it's all just one sermon. So it's hard to separate one week from the next. And we're overlapping a little bit with last week. Last week we said that, that we've got to grow up because we have this better priest in Jesus. Right? We saw this struggle that Jesus went through, the suffering that Jesus went through. And he says we should be mature like Jesus was mature. True repentance struggles. So look at verses 511 through 6.3. It says about this, again, that priesthood of Jesus, about this sacrifice of Jesus, about this thing, this life that Jesus purchased for us, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain, not because it's difficult, but because you are dull of hearing. Because you have lazy ears. You're refusing to listen. It says in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. The solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we've got this constant practice, this wrestling with solid food, this maturity, this growing up. It, it looks like something. There's a real struggle. There's a striving. This, this word that has appeared again and again throughout Hebrews, strive. Don't be lazy. Don't just sit and listen, but unite yourself by faith to what he's saying. Trust in him. Chapter 6 verse 1. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What he's saying there is not you at one point get too good for the basics, right? Because we always need the gospel, we always need the milk, but we need to move on towards maturity and build on that foundation. We always need that foundation, but we are to build a life of maturity, of struggle, of growing up, of sacrifice, of giving ourselves to others based on that foundation that we have. Right. So this repentance from dead works, turning away from the things that we thought were good enough to earn favor with God, we need to turn away from that, we need to understand... Uh, Our baptism, we need to understand the the future that we have in Christ the glory that's to come He, he says we need to move on from those basic teachings and build a life of maturity, of struggle, of striving of suffering like Jesus built on those basics of the faith we need to stop being a baby that just sucks on the bottle, but we need to go on and be mature, right? and struggle and strive and contribute something move on beyond just being a baby that sits there, that that doesn't do anything. There's some good insight that we can find when we look at uh, first century letters of the early church fathers. Polycarp is the name of one of these guys that was discipled by the apostles, and he's one of the first uh, first, uh, kind of bishops or leaders in the church after the time of the apostles. He's written one letter that we still have called the Letter to the Philippians by Polycarp, not to be confused with the Letter to the Philippians in the Bible. But Polycarp basically says that, helps us to see that the word of righteousness that he talks about in verse 13 is a technical term for being willing to be a martyr. He says, I exhort you all therefore to be obedient unto the word of righteousness and to practice all endurance, which also you saw with your own eyes in the blessed Ignatius and Zosimus and Rufus and in others also who came from among yourselves as well as in Paul himself and the rest of the apostles, being persuaded that all these ran not in vain, but in faith and righteousness, and that they are in their due place in the presence of the Lord, with whom also they suffered. For they loved not the present world, but Him that died for our sakes, and was raised by God for us." William Lane is a a scholar of these early church fathers, and also a commentator on the book of Hebrews, and he shows that this word of righteousness, being skilled in the word of righteousness, was a word that stood for what the martyrs did when they were willing to cling by faith to who Jesus was. To cling to that word of righteousness and to endure, and not to recant and say, now forget Jesus, but to continue to persevere in faith and to be martyred, to be killed for their faith. And so in context, with that interpretation, that first century use of the word, word of righteousness, and with just in that previous section at the end of chapter 5 where we saw them talking about Jesus being willing to give his life for us, and that word of Jesus being Perfect. We talked about that's the same word. That word, perfect, and the word maturity in this section. Those words are the same word in Greek. That maturity, that growing up, that struggling looks like struggling like Jesus did, being willing to give ourself for others. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a great example of this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have y'all ever heard of Bonhoeffer? He was a Christian pastor during the time of World War Two. There's a great book that our assistant pastor, just read by Eric Metaxas, and I've, I've read reviews of it as well, that said this is a really good, really good book, but Bonhoeffer was a guy that basically was a martyr for the faith. He was able early on to escape the Nazis taking over Germany. He was a German pastor. He was able to escape and get to safety and leave the country, but later on he felt like, you know what? God's calling me to suffer with my people and to comfort them. I'm a pastor. God's called me to pastor these people. I need to go back to Germany and try to shepherd them through this difficulty, And so Bonhoeffer went back into a difficult situation and tried to resist the Nazis, ended up being put into a prison camp, was able to comfort people there in the prison camp, but ultimately died for his faith. And he believed very strongly that we are to struggle against the powers of evil, and that we are to struggle in our faith. What he felt like in many of the writings that we've seen from Bonhoeffer is that part of the problem with Christians during World War II in Germany is that they had kind of an easy believism. They had what he called a cheap grace, where they didn't really feel like there was any sacrifice that needed to come out of it. We've talked about that here before. A true understanding of grace and how deep and how rich and how incredible it is changes us. That that causes a true change of heart, a true change of mind. It propels us to live our lives with reckless abandonment. If you really believe that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, that's going to make you live in a different sort of way. If you really believe that nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand, you're going to live in a different sort of way than someone that believes, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to look out for number one. If you believe that God has you, that will propel you into a life of struggle, a life of suffering, a life of self-sacrifice like Bonhoeffer. Here's this great quote about our call to follow Jesus. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Right? So if we're going over the cliff, instead of just clinging to the cliff, entrusting ourselves to Jesus to get us down the side of that mountain. He says, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. One of the most famous quotes of Bangha. Again, he doesn't call us to the health and wealth, right? He does, but that's future. And so all the health and wealth preachers, they have a lot of great biblical texts to go to, but those are future promises. Again, we call that heaven. That's our word for that. The new heavens and the new earth. That's not now. Jesus said, if you follow me, you will have troubles. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul says, yeah, I'd rather go to heaven now, but God's left me here to serve you, to suffer, to struggle for your sake. And that's our call. I think a very, specific, a very specific application of what it looks like to struggle and to build on the foundation that we've learned is just to be a teacher. To be willing to teach others, to lead others. I get that right out of this text. Verse 11, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 12. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He says you're just babies. You just want to be fed the bottle. But you should be moving on beyond that. You should have an ability to contribute, right? You should be a contributing member of the family. You shouldn't just be a baby being carried around still and being fed the bottle. You should be teachers. But instead, you need us to teach you again and remind you of this stuff all over again. If you really took these things to heart, it would propel you into a different life. You'd be willing to struggle. You'd be willing to suffer. I'd say this is a really big application for us. One of the great blessings of God on this church is that God continues to bring new people to us. We talked about that. That's one of the unique things about being in Queen, Texas is new people come through all the time. Another great thing here is I think we've begun to have a reputation in this town as being a place that's safe for people that want to ask questions that don't really know what they believe and that just are able to come as they are and just come and hear the word of God and ask questions and be accepted. And in that process, what we see is we've got more and more people coming into the church that need the foundation, that don't have the foundation, They don't understand the basics of the faith. And there's many of you that have those basics, that have that foundation, and you need to move on. You need to be willing to be teachers to take what you've learned and to share with others. It's not about having it all figured out. It's not about having it all together. Being a teacher doesn't mean knowing the answer for everything. In this context, he's saying it's just a willingness to struggle. It's just a willingness to suffer and to go through some hard stuff. Because it's not always easy leading other people. It's not always easy being hospitable. I mean, we always always have more people coming than we have people willing to teach classes, right? We always need more people to teach Sunday school. We always need more people that need to open up their home and and lead others in small groups. If you're interested in doing anything like that, come talk to me or come talk to anybody else in leadership of the church or call the church office, because we need more people to make that movement. Because just like he's saying here to the Hebrews, we we see the same reality in our church, and I think in every church, we have a lot of people that, that really should be teaching others, but they're just sitting. They're just drinking from the bottle, but they're not sharing with others. For some of you, it may not look like formal teaching, right? It may not look like something that's a part of the machinery of the church. There just may be somebody that God's put in your life that you know the Holy Spirit has put it in your mind and in your heart. You know you're supposed to talk to them. You know you're supposed to go after this person. I don't know who they are. I can't look into all of your lives. But I know that this is the case. From the text and just from normal human behavior, I know it's the case. It's normal for us to just kind of sit back and be lazy, like he's talking about here and, and not be willing to struggle and not be willing to step out and take a risk to share or to lead someone else along. Again, you, you don't have to have it all figured out. I mean, you can teach other people and then you stumble and then you get back up and you say, hey, yeah, I stumbled, come on, let's keep going. That's, that's the genuine Christian life, right? Being willing to confess that you have sin, you don't have it all together. First John 1, 8, and 9 talks about two kinds of people in the world. There's the liars that say they don't have any sin. Then there's the honest people that say, yeah, I've got sin and I'm trusting Jesus to take care of that for me. That's what it means. You've got to have that basic foundation together. And if you have that basic foundation together, you can lead others. You can lead others along. You can struggle and you can follow in Jesus' footsteps in that way. The next thing that we see is in this difficult section that that we've got to have a repentance that's rooted in Christ. And this is the section that's, that's really difficult. The, the image that I would give you here in chapter 6, 4 through 6, is a plant. I don't know if you can see the contrast there, but this is a cross-section of a tree, and there's roots below a tree, right? And for a tree to survive, it's got to have these roots tapped into the nutrients. For us to have a genuine repentance, we have to be tapped into Jesus. We have to be rooted in Christ. And I believe that's what the author is saying. I believe at its base level, again, there's a lot of, different, there's a lot of argument over this, this section here, just these few little verses here in chapter 6. There's a lot of debate. A lot of theologians think different things about this. But I think no matter what position you take, the baseline is you've got to be rooted in Christ. Christ is your only hope. Now let's let's dive into this. Let's talk about what... He's saying here, let me read it again for you one more time. He says, it's impossible, starting in verse 4, got that on the screen, verses 4 through 6, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since, or it could be translated while, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up, to contempt. Now, there's two broad categories, two basic ways that you can interpret this. Uh, Our church falls down on one side, uh, and then once you fall on on that one side of the two broad categories, there's like ten other categories within those two categories, so this is pretty complex. Um, And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to kind of present the two general categories, and then we're going to just zero in on, on what I believe the context shows this to mean today. And uh, you're welcome to, to read the 57 other views and the commentaries. I can loan them to you, photocopy them if you want to look at that, or you can ask me questions afterwards. Um, but I'm going to try to kind of narrow us down and focus on what we believe the true application to be here. So the two general categories are that you can lose your salvation or that you can not lose your salvation, but you can appear to have it and then lose what you appeared to have. Does that make sense? So two general categories our church falls on the you can appear to have it and then lose what you appeared to have category. Okay? You, you following me? So this text either means they're really, really saved, they've fallen away, and now they're really, really lost. Now the problem with this text is it's not a really good text for the church traditions that believe that because what it's saying is you can be really, really saved and then really, really lost and then you got no hope after that. Right? So it says it's impossible to be re- renewed again. And so this text isn't a real good verse for those people that hold to that tradition, because generally that tradition says you can be really, really lost, you can be really, really saved, and then you can really lose it. And then you can be saved again, and then you can lose it again. You know, that, generally that tradition kind of follows that train of thinking. So anyway, we'll spend most of our time on, on our tradition, kind of the Protestant, um, the general evangelical Protestant tradition for the most part, holds to the you can't, really lose it. You might appear to have it and then lose what you appeared to have. But you can't lose a real repentance, a real salvation. Right? If it's real, you can't lose it. There's no shaking it. Now, what I want to do is I want to zero in on what I believe this is saying under those circumstances. First, I want to explain why we hold to the, it's possible to have something that looks like salvation and then lose that. And I would say because that's, that's uh, visible again and again throughout the New Testament. Because you see that example again and again in the New Testament. You see it specifically in the Old Testament. And then Paul, in his letters, and the author of the Hebrews here in the first four chapters, has said, Don't be like those Old Testament people of God that were a part of the group but didn't really know God. Right? They were brought out of slavery. They were brought out of Egypt. But then they fell away because they didn't really trust in God. He's saying, So don't be like that. And so what what he's telling us is that we can be a church, right? In a loose sense, the people of God, you can walk through the doors, you can attend, you can participate, you can taste, you can hear, you can feel, you can you can uh, ha- take part in all of it as he lists out here, but then not really trust him. When hard times come, fall away. The, the best parable of Jesus that describes this reality is in Matthew 13. Again, another one to write down. We don't have time to, to read through that whole section right now, but it's the parable of the soils, and it talks about the different seeds, right? There are seeds that never really take root, and there are seeds that Take root and then get crushed, and then there's seeds that take root, and then when hard times come, then they fall away. And then there's the final one that perseveres and it bears fruit and it goes on forever. And that's an example of what the author of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 that says, We show that we're really partakers, we really share in Christ, if we persevere to the end. That shows that we really trust Him, if we keep trusting Him. Perseverance doesn't mean perfection, right? Again, in 1 John, it's real clear, you're, you're not perfect. As a matter of fact, to be a Christian, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You can't even be a Christian if you think you're perfect. I know it's bad news for a lot of you. But, but if, if, you're, if you're that kind of uptight religious person that thinks God is impressed with you because you're so religious and you're so righteous, I'm sorry, but, but that's not Christianity. That, that is not the Christian faith. John says in 1 John 1, 8, and 9, you're either lying about your sin and saying it's not there, or you're confessing it and trusting Jesus to take care of it. And Hebrews 3, 14 says, if you persevere, if you continue to trust Him to take care of that, then you show yourself to really be trusting Him in the first place. And so that's our thesis. Because we see that in the New Testament, we see that in the Old Testament. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10. It's another text that you can go to. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. So he's saying Jesus was there in the Old Testament. Just because we didn't know his name until the New Testament. He was still there. It's one God. We believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally co-equal together. One God. Three persons. Christ was there. Christ was saving those Old Testament people. But then he says in 1 Corinthians ten five. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul's saying the same thing we basically already saw in Hebrews 3 and 4, that there are these people that were going out of their slavery, but they didn't trust God. They fell away. So they were part of the group, but they weren't really gods. They weren't really in Christ by faith. They weren't really trusting him. They were just trusting their birth, their loose connection, right, to the people of God. Uh, John the Baptist talks about this when he says, you've got to repent, for the kingdom is near. And it's not enough to be a son of Abraham, right? The Jewish people said, hey, we don't need to repent. We're sons of Abraham. We're Jews. He's saying, no, that's not enough. It's not enough to be good. It's not enough to be born in the right family. You've got to repent. You've got to turn away from trusting yourself. Turn away from trusting in your goodness. Turn away from trusting in your family. And trusting God and God alone. There's a message of John the Baptist as well. In Romans 2, 28, Paul says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And this person's praise is not from man, but from God. So again, Paul's reiterating that you can be externally part of the people of God. You can be a Jew. You can be a church member. But not really be one of God's people. Does that make sense? And the difference is not how good you are. The difference is your trust in Jesus. Because right? as we've said already, you can be trusting in how good you are and miss Jesus. And you can be uh, trusting that you're so bad God can't forgive you and miss Jesus. Jesus is enough to pay for your sins if you struggle and think you're terrible and you're unforgivable. Jesus is enough. And if you think you're so good that you can work yourself into heaven, you need to know that you're not enough. But Jesus is enough. Either way, no matter which side of the spectrum you fall on. In Galatians 3, Paul says it this way, You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Because it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's saying we were were clearly Vividly showing to you the cross How could you be bewitched And be pulled away to some other idea That something else could save you The the cross is all that can save you And he goes on in Galatians 3.7 Know then that it is those of faith Who are the sons of Abraham Being, Being born a Jew isn't enough Being born a church member is not enough Being a part loosely of the people of God Is not enough But you need to trust in him by faith Trusting in the cross and what he's done So so for that reason, I would put us in that general category of you can look like you have salvation and fall away because you're not really trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now the other thing that we see here is just, as I said, that that's the context of Hebrews. That he's already kind of saying that in the book of Hebrews already. He's saying, be careful not to just trust in the things of God, but you've got to trust in Jesus himself, right? Because all these things are good. But but that's the flannel graph. That's the shadows. Those are the pointers. Those are the signs saying, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. You've got to trust in Jesus himself. And then finally, the grammar itself in this uh, particular little section in verse, where is it, verse 6. So chapter 6, verse 6, it says, and then they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Basically saying, Uh, that they are mocking Jesus. They're saying that the first time Jesus went to the cross wasn't enough. It didn't count. It can't cut it. And again, you can do this either by thinking you're good enough and you don't need the cross, or by thinking that your sins are so great that the cross is not enough to cover them. Those are two different ways that you can mock Jesus. Those are two different ways that you can crucify him all over again. That you can say what he's done is not enough. And the reason I believe that this is speaking of it in this way, that this is what it means to fall away and not trust him, is because that participle, crucifying, is a present participle. And in Greek, that's almost always translated in a temporal sense. And I apologize for all the grammar here. But it's almost always translated as while. So normally, this would be translated in the Greek as uh, it's impossible to do this while you're crucifying him again, while you're holding him up to public contempt. It's impossible to be renewed renewed again to repentance. You can't have the second repentance. You can't have another salvation apart from Jesus. While you're rejecting him, while you're mocking him, while you're re-crucifying him, while you're saying what he did on the cross was not enough for me, I need to crucify him again. I need to mock what he's done for me. While you are doing that, there's no other hope of repentance. There's no other salvation available. There's nothing left. And that's echoed later on in the book of Hebrews. There's no sacrifice for sins that is left, it says in chapter 10. There's no other alternative. If the cross is not enough for you, you have no other option. There's nothing else that will cut it for you. So as I said, in Greek, it's most commonly translated while. Now some people would translate it since. And if it means since, that means that once you fall away, there's no going back. And I would say the fear in that situation is that there's a place of hardness that you can get to where there's just no turning around. Where you can just no longer trust in him. You've trusted in yourself for so long. But like I said, that to me, that doesn't agree with what we've seen in the rest of the New Testament. And so I would take it in the more common Greek grammar that he's saying while. As long as you're rejecting the cross, there's no repentance left for you. As long as you're rejecting what Jesus has already done, there's no other option. That's the only provision for sin that's given for us. It's not your goodness, and it's not your being sorry and moping around for what you've done. Neither side. If you think you're great, that's not enough. If you think you're terrible, you're not so bad that you're out of his reach. The cross is, is all that will do. Trusting in him to die in your place and to give you his perfect righteousness. That, that is our only hope. Now, one of the reasons that this interpretation is rejected is because some people say that it's redundant, right? They would say, well, it doesn't make sense to say uh, that you've got to be afraid that you can't have another repentance as long as you're not trusting in Jesus. You know, like that almost seems like something that's not worth saying. And I would argue that we see that all the time in today's world. We see people that attend churches where Jesus is not something they really think is real Where Jesus is not something they think can really save them, but he's just their favorite myth, right? It's like the first church of Superman or the first church of uh, Achilles or something, you know? They're just like, yeah, this is the story I like. Jesus was nice. He did nice things, but died for my sins, rose from the dead. I don't know about all that. There's thousands of people in our country that gather in country clubs called churches all over the place. And they don't believe in Jesus. They just like all of Jesus' stuff. They like the culture of Jesus. But they don't really trust in Jesus himself. And so I don't think it's redundant. I think it is a warning that needs to be said. That you can't trust in the trappings of Jesus and reject Jesus. Because you're rejecting what he's already done for you. You're mocking him. You're crucifying him all over again. Our only hope is to trust that he's enough. That he can save us. That we're not too good for him and we're not too bad for him. But that he loves us despite what we've done. The last thing that we see... In this, uh, in this whole section is, is kind of a return to, to reassurance. This is the section where he says, you know what, though? I see better things in your life. Right? He starts off with a soft warning. That first section we saw, the, kind of the soft warning that it's got to look like something. Right? You can't, you can't just be a baby. That's, kind of, that's a scary place to be. And then he moved from that soft warning onto the scary warning of, you know what? You can miss him altogether. You can completely miss him. And now he's returning to some reassurance for us, right? And a similar reassurance that I see as I look out on the body that has gathered here at Grace Bible Church. First of all, he restates it in Old Testament terms. Hebrews 6, 7, he says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. So if you produce, you get a blessing. Verse 8, But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. A little scary thrown in again there before he gets on to the more assuring stuff. But he's saying basically if, if you're producing, then, then you're blessed. Good things, right? Th- this metaphor is used again and again in the Old Testament, in Psalm 1, right? The man that trusts in the Lord, the man that trusts in God is like a tree planted by water. Not so for the sinner that doesn't trust in God. He's like, a, he's like chaff that blows away. You know, he's just nothing there. He just gets... Burned up, you know. There's the crop that provides, and then there's the thorns and thistles. And again, it, it, not real uh, encouraging here. But he goes on to say, "We and we see production in your life." He goes on in verse nine to say that we see some production. The picture I, I have here when I when I first hear the word produces, this is what I usually think of, kind of a industrial term. Y'all think of the word production that way. When somebody says production, I just I just think. Industrial, I think, what are you producing? You know, we've got an assembly line here. In World War II, part of how we defeated the Nazis was our greater capacity to produce. Right? We outproduced them with the machinery of war. We were able to produce more planes, produce more tanks, produce more guns. And that was part of what helped us to win the war. And so that may be what you think of when you hear the word production. In this context, I think that would be a good sense of it. But specifically, in their day and time, it it wasn't an industrial society, it was an agrarian or a a farming society, right? And So here he's talking specifically about a crop. He's talking about this this feeling that a farmer has when he's living week to week and day to day, and when he's got a good crop, he can feed his family. And he can make a little extra money to maybe uh, buy another donkey or whatever it might be. But if he doesn't get a crop, if his crop fails, it's a life and death issue, right? He doesn't have a backup plan. He doesn't have ATB. He doesn't have Walmart, right? He's got to produce. And so I don't think we quite get the the life and death situation that it's talking about when we get these agrarian or or farming illustrations. But there's a crop that produces that gives life. And there's a crop that just produces thorns and thistles that's worthless. It's nothing but death. And he's saying those are the two kinds of uh, lives that you see among humanity. And he's saying if we have a true repentance, if we truly cling to Jesus, we're going to produce a crop. There's going to be blessing in our life. He says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, all these warnings, these scary possibilities, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. So again, he was very clear in laying the foundation that your works do not save you. Your works do not save you, right? All the good production, all the good fruit that you bear, that cannot save you. But then here he's saying, but you know, I I feel like you're saved because you're doing good things. And this is a tension in the spiritual life, right? We have to say again and again, your works cannot save you. Coming here doesn't save you. Teaching Sunday school doesn't save you. Giving doesn't save you. Working in the nursery doesn't save you. Don't, don't tell my nursery director I told you that. She wants people to think that But all these good things, right? They, those, those things cannot save us. But if we're saved, we're going to do good things. And so that's a tension. A lot of times churches just fall off one side of that or the other, right? It's all about nothing you do saves you, so it doesn't matter, and we never want to challenge people to do anything good. Or the other side of is you've got to do good things, and so they, they start twisting the gospel to say, really, you're saved by doing the good things. No, it's, it's nothing you do saves you. But that salvation that God gives you will propel you, right? If you are held in God's hands and you don't have to be afraid of anything, that will drive you to live your lives with a reckless abandon. That will drive you to be able to give yourself away. You will look different. You will live differently. You will be generous if you really believe that God has been generous to you. It will change you. And he's saying, that's what I see in your life. You've been generous. He says God's not unjust. He's not going to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. God sees it. He's not overlooking. He's not uh, forgetting it, literally here. He, He remembers what you've done. He sees you. He sees the life coming forth, bubbling up right from the roots. You're rooted in Christ, and that's going to give you life, and you're going to bear fruit. You're going to produce. Good things are going to come out of your life. Verse 11 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be lazy, sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, this is uh, pointing now forward to Abraham. Next, next week, we're going to look at the life of Abraham and what faith looks like. Again, Abraham wasn't perfect. Look at all the Old Testament characters. All these guys stumbled, they did stupid things, they treated people badly, they made mistakes. They faltered, but ultimately their faith in God saved them. It's God who does the saving. We don't save ourselves. So we're going to look at that example next week. But he's saying here in verse 11, we, we want to see an earnestness. We want to see you striving. We want to see you struggling to have a full assurance of faith. We want to see you producing. We want to see it looking like something in your life. So we're left again with this tension. We've got to trust absolutely in Jesus that he's... Enough. You can't walk with the people of God and, and try to imitate the people of God and say, oh, they're, they're walking with this kind of uh, step, so I'll walk this way, and maybe that'll save me. No, he's saying walking along with the people of God doesn't save you. It's Jesus that saves you. But, but that should propel you to do something. That should produce something in your life. Generally, when we look through the Scriptures, we see fruit in the Christian life translated into three Cs. This is one of those annoying preacher things, right? You just helps us to memorize things. We, we see it look like character, conduct, and converts, right? I mean, I think that's the fruit that we produce in our life. Character, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, right? The, the Spirit will produce fruit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. There's going to be real character change in us, right? You're not perfect. You'll continue to stumble. You'll continue to fall, but you'll begin to be transformed. Whereas you were disrespectful before, you'll begin to be respectful. Whereas you're always angry before, you'll begin to be able to hold that temper and have self-control. Whereas you were always hopeless before, you'll begin to have hope. You'll begin to have joy. He transforms our character. He transforms our conduct, right? In Colossians and Ephesians, it talks about taking off the old man and putting on the new man. We we begin to put away old habits. We begin to be able to not rely on the bottle as much and just to be able to rely on our faith in Christ. We begin to not rely on these unhealthy relationships anymore, but rely on Christ. And we begin to change our lifestyle and not live any longer entangled in sin, but begin to put those things away. Again, not perfect, but moving on, producing, bearing fruit. It begins to grow. It's organic. It's not black and white. It's not on and off, but it's this change that slowly takes place in our life. And then lastly, converts. The fruit of this life is people are going to begin to be attracted to you. They're going to see something supernatural happening in your life. And people come to faith by coming to church and hearing the word taught, hearing Jesus proclaimed. But often the way that people come to faith is through looking into your lives, by being your neighbors, by working with you. That's more typically how people come to faith. They meet a Christian that's for real. Then they meet another Christian that's for real. And then they begin to piece this together that these strange people whose lives are being transformed, who don't think they're too good for other people, but all have the same Jesus in common. And so you begin to see converts grow out of that too. You begin to see the fruit of changed lives. People coming to faith for the first time. Well, we need to wrap up. We went long, I apologize. I've still got another page of notes to go to if you want to hear more verses, but like I said, this is there's just there's a lot of theology and a lot of different discussion on this text. Um, I want to encourage you. When I went over that cliff, I was I was terrified, right? I mean, I just wanted to say you guys are crazy if you think I'm going to lean back over this cliff, right? But I'm not not afraid of heights, but I am afraid of jumping off a cliff. And uh, but but I again changed my mind. I, I trusted them, and they were able to coax me to trust in the rope again, and I was able. To make it down and I want to encourage you that, that trusting in Jesus it, it, it's easy because you already know that you can't trust yourself right you already know that you've let yourself down you already know that you can't trust other people all the time but Hebrews gives us this vision of a Jesus who holds the universe together and this God that created everything passed through the heavens to give himself for you. He's the only thing that we can trust in in this life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us Jesus. I pray that it would look like something in our lives that would propel us to live by faith in You. We thank You
1: for loving us. And we pray in Jesus' name.